Hey, I'm Janet French, and this is the Press Gallery. Before we get to today's show, just a reminder to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you listen. Leave us a rating and a review, and it would really help us out. Enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's Alberta politics podcast. It's Friday, November 22nd, 2019, and this is episode 299, the Do We Still Have an Election Commissioner edition? I'm your host, Janet French. <laughs> With me today in studio, we have the one and only amazing reporter, Lisa Johnson. Wow, what an intro. Thank you, Janet. That was badly planned. Um, <laughs> and Lisa has joined me down for the last couple of weeks at the legislature. Thanks, man. It's been a wild ride. Yes, never a dull moment. Next to her is our boss, managing editor Dave Breckenridge. How are you? Doing well. Wonderful. Yes. Yes, that was very firm. Everyone, (laughs) don't question it. (laughs) (laughs) Move along. (laughs) Nothing to see here. (laughs) Next to him, Keith Jarine, our legislature columnist. Hi. Drinking his English breakfast tea. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. Also famous for constantly being quoted in the legislature. Yeah, I hate it when they do that. They just need to stop. Come up with your own material, folks. Just <laughs> leave, leave me out of it. <laughs> oh, I don't, I... <laughs> yes, yes. And and having your name mispronounced, no less. Uh, yeah, well, that I'm used to, but... Well, I imagine so. Anyhow. Um, it's not Garion? No. no. Or okay. Garin. Garin. Or, no. Garin <laughs> was this week. Or Jerrion. No. Jerrion. That's a new one in our... Yeah. Uh, wow. Nobody screws up Janet, but uh, they people don't understand the last name French. Hmm. I'll be like, "What do you? What's your name? It's French. Oh, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, spelled F R E. Anyway, <laughs> moving along. It has been a week. Uh, it has been a month. It has been well more than a week. It has been a very long week uh, since the federal election. More than a month. Finally, we have a federal cabinet, um, which. Obviously, people in Alberta are wanting to know who's going to be on that thing. Do we have any representation? Mm, Not really. Uh, We'll talk about that. A little closer to home, we also had um, a little more drama on Bill 207 this week, which was a controversial private member's bill about healthcare workers' conscience rights. That was back in the spotlight. We're going to talk about the latest developments there. But first, the sun around which everything orbited this week politically was... Bill 22, which has a very benign sounding name, which was the Reform of Agencies, Boards and Commissions and Government Enterprises Act. Uh, But it caused a real ruckus. And what this omnibus bill did among a bevy of administrative changes um, that was supposed to save the government money was um, prompted the termination or imminent termination of Alberta's election commissioner. And longtime podcast listeners will know, of course, that uh, this position was created in July 2018 by the former NDP government. And since then, election commissioner Lauren Gibson has been investigating and fining and penalizing dozens and dozens of election financing violations. Many of them are connected to the 2017 United Conservative Party leadership race. So Bill 22 proposes to terminate Gibson's contract um, and move that position of election commissioner underneath the purview of the chief electoral officer, as it is apparently done federally and in Manitoba. We have heard many, many, many times this week. Um, The problem is what happens to the investigations 
that may or may not be underway already in the election commissioner's office. Um, although the government really tried to play innocent about this bill and said, no, no, it's just, a, just an administrative change, nothing, just a consolidation, money saving, we're going to save $200,000 a year for five years for this change. A lot of people thought it did not pass the smell test. Why? <laughs> where do you where do you want us to start? Oh, anywhere you like, really. <laughs> um, Boy, in my years covering the legislature, this is uh, perhaps the most controversial, I would argue, the most vile piece of legislation I've seen coming through the the legislature. It is, um, to me, an end run around democracy. It's uh, a government that believes it's above the law. It's a government that believes it really has uh, nothing to fear in terms of political reprisals. But yeah, I mean, very, very telling here. Uh, this is an omnibus bill, as you said. The government's introduced four of these during the legislature. Uh, during this legislative session. Only one of them got passed in two and a half days, though, which was Bill 22. Why did it need to be passed so quickly? We believe royal assent is probably going to be given today. That's not necessarily normal either. Often it can take weeks before royal assent is given. We'll see how it actually plays out, but it is expected that it will be done uh, today or very, very quickly. And what that means is the election commissioner, Lauren Gibson, is fired the moment that royal assent is given. He was supposed to appear before a committee next Friday. We would have been talking about it perhaps on the podcast or previewing it on the next podcast, episode 300. That's probably not going to happen now because his position won't exist. So these things are all very telling. The fact that Kenny was out of the country when all of this went down as well, so he didn't have to answer questions about it. That's also very, very telling. Um, and the government so far, in my mind, has not provided any kind of explanation on why that all had to be done. So you um, don't, you don't buy the, the defense that they're just going to yeah, roll it in and it'll be in fine, they'll get back provinces. to work. Oh, Dave's pointing a finger. I mean, even if you agree with that reasoning and that rationale and you say, okay, fine, we want to save money, so we're going to roll in the role of the election commissioner into the office of the chief electoral officer and investigations will be handled that way and we won't be needing the services of Lauren Gibson anymore. Even if all of that is fine with you, the process in which this was done, you know, put, saying it didn't pass the smell test puts it very mildly, I think. Well, I, I'm not you know, allowed to have opinions, No, No, are. that's yeah. fair, fair enough. Um, but for... <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about He's this, out of words, we've, you guys. we've talked about this government kind of scoring on it scoring on its own net, shooting itself in the foot um over the last few weeks on a number of different issues and this seems like the pinnacle of that is that I don't know how they thought that this would go over well at all with anybody. It just boggles the mind. Really. What were you like, thinking? Yeah. What if you want to get rid of Lauren Gibson, I, you know, the, the progressive conservatives did not have a, uh, a good history with, with Mr. Gibson and his appointment as election commissioner was, um, roundly criticized by the UCP. Um, that's, you know, that's kind of politics. Appointees from one party aren't always liked by appointees from another party. So I could see them wanting to get rid of him at some point, but doing it now, really? Yeah. Really, like I, they, I am at a loss for words because it just the gall of the whole thing is mind-boggling. Well, and that that I think that is one of the major questions and one of the major criticisms, right? Is why why were they in such a rush? And the UCP, when we talked to House Leader Jason Nixon, had been very um, 
kind of like, what do, what do you mean, rush? Like, we just, we have an ambitious legislative agenda. We have 13 to 14 pieces of legislation pushed through. Like, it's like, okay, well, then why did you set time limits on all three stages of debates for this specific bill? Uh, and then we said, is it because he's supposed to appear before this committee? Oh, no, no. He would only just talk about his upcoming budget there. It's not, he can't talk about any investigation. So there's a lot of, I don't know if minimizing, but maybe deflection about um, about what's really going on here. Does does anyone have a guess about what is really going on here? What <laughs> what do we think is happening behind the scenes that we don't know that would prompt this kind of action? I, I'd hate to hazard a guess. I mean, it, go on Twitter, you can see all sorts of, of guesses nah, about, <laughs> about what's going on. I know the 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 AB ledge uh, hashtag this week has been quite fiery to say the least on a number of fronts. Um, I don't know. I think the bigger question for me is, okay, so they say the investigation can continue under the chief electoral officer. Can, may, can. No, th- may, they say, not they will. They say it can. Yeah. Will it? Yeah. Um, I think that the public deserves to know whether that investigation is continuing. And I know that Lorne Gibson, in his role as election commissioner, did not like to talk much at all, let alone about what he's investigating and what he wasn't investigating. But even when it came to uh, penalties and, uh, reprimands that he doled out. There was, he didn't say much at all. So, you know, it would be like a line on the website, like so-and-so is charged with, you know, brief description of what kind of violation it was, collusion with somebody else. Yeah, exactly. At best, this disrupts the investigation. Um, at worst, it may completely dismantle it and stop it from happening. And a lot of things have to happen for these investigations to continue. So the chief electoral officer, Glenn Ressler, is going to have to hire back Gibson immediately. His staff is going to have to transfer over and be reassigned to the those investigations. This is now all under the power of Glenn Ressler, not under the power of Lauren Gibson or any commissioner that is hired, right? It doesn't have to be Lauren Gibson. It doesn't have to be anybody. It doesn't have to be Glenn Ressler six right. months from now. Right. And Glenn Ressler, as you mentioned, his contract's up in April. And if he decides that he wants to continue with these investigations, if he decides that Lauren Gibson should be rehired, well, his contract is up in April, uh, goes to the Legislative Offices Committee, which the UCP has a majority on. They could say, yeah, you know what? It's time for a new chief electoral officer, maybe one who isn't so focused on investigating. That, that is certainly um, something that I, is a little Machiavellian. It's something that I wouldn't have thought a week ago that that would have happened. But now it appears this government, uh, uh, th- their bar is uh, a little lower than we thought. Um, and an interesting you know, part of the drama this week was the NDP's <laughs> uh, attempt to, at, at any cost, <laughs> to, <laughs> to halt some of this. And they, my gosh, they were trying every tool in the toolbox and some tools outside the toolbox uh, to try and make this stop. Um, they, uh, Leader Rachel Notley wrote a letter to the lieutenant governor, which is a fairly unusual thing to do, asking her to kind of depart from usual constitutional monarchy business and uh, refuse to grant royal assent to this bill, which I understand would be sort of not not in keeping with tradition. Not in keeping with tradition, <laughs> but also as some people would argue that it's like it's that's actually not her role to make these kinds of political decisions. Is that if the if the house if it's the house's will, then like if there's nothing improper, then you know have at her. I think it. I think it's happened only once in Alberta's history, and it was back in the 30s. I can only recall one case. So it it, it is very very unusual. Yeah, and uh, so the opposition also tried. 
a bit of a letter writing campaign with uh, letters to the ethics commissioner to try and say, hey, um, if these UCP MLAs, if some of them have been interviewed by the police or potentially under investigation by the police or the election commissioner, are they in a conflict of interest for voting on this bill or discussing this bill? And actually, uh, we got an opinion back yesterday from the ethics commissioner saying, well, maybe, yeah, if if some of these MLAs are in fact being actively investigated by the RCMP or the election commissioner, then they maybe should not be. They should recuse themselves from any kind of discussion or from voting. And so we were watching very carefully to see who was in the House yesterday to see who voted and whether people who have been interviewed by police, because that's the only list we know, we don't know necessarily who the election commissioner has been looking into to see did they vote or did they not. Uh, and there were three MLAs who uh, who have been interviewed by police. They're not under investigation by police, but they have talked to police about the UCP leadership race that did vote on the bill yesterday. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, and then also Notley has also, uh, or not Notley, just but other, um, they've been trying to get, find some other way to get the uh, election commissioner to appear before any legislative committee that they can <laughs> they can get, right, to try and get him in front of MLA so they can ask him questions in a public forum about what he is doing. Now, whether he'd actually be at liberty to say anything, I don't know. I think they're just looking for any avenue they can find. Why Why are they? And, the, and I actually kind of want you guys to talk about the kinds of adjectives and like the, the framing and the tone that Notley has taken about this. It's been very... Colorful, well, right? Well, yeah, she's, she certainly hasn't um, moderated her language at all. I know she got in trouble in the house earlier this week. She got named, as mm -hmm. it was, uh, which yeah. means she got removed. Uh, for, she got booted uh, out. She got booted out of the, the legislature for accusing uh, UCP House Leader Jason Nixon of misleading the House, which is very unparliamentary, as it, as it were. Um, she has used all sorts of other colorful adjectives that one may normally ascribe to um, I don't know, governments in, in less democratic countries. Um, <laughs> very nicely put. Yes. And, and, you know, I mean, points for creativity on the NDP's part for trying the ethics commissioner route and trying the lieutenant governor route. I, I think that was all more part of the theater of the week to try and bring attention to it than it was hoping for a positive outcome in their favor. It was mm. more a way to keep, uh, I mean, I was, I was kind of surprised that the ethics commissioner came out and said, yeah, no, that's, they shouldn't vote on that. That's if they're, maybe a if thing. If they're questioned yeah. about it, maybe they shouldn't vote on it. That was kind of surprising. But mm. I think, uh, it, you know, it was kind of a, a shotgun approach or like throwing things at the wall to see what would stick, <laughs> um, to, to mix metaphors there. Yeah, no, her language has been um, heavy, um, I think warranted in this case, though, and I, I would use some of the same language that she did uh, about this being undemocratic, this being an attempt to avoid accountability. Um, it is, uh, to me, a, as I said, I think the most vile piece of legislation I've seen in quite some time. Uh, she used the word disgusting. I think that is also appropriate. Um, and this is, uh, this is something that the NDP is going to try to keep reminding Albertans about. The, the government 
chose this moment because it is three and a half years before the next election, and they are counting on voters forgetting it. Uh, the NDP is going to do its utmost to make sure voters remember. Uh, the phrase, the most corrupt government or the most corrupt premier in Alberta history is uh, going to be used quite frequently in question period. You I, think, hear that. I think they found their new uh, tagline. Mm. Uh, they're so gonna many memes. They're going to replace the four point five, $4.7 $4. billion dollar <laughs> giveaway to corporations. They're going to replace that with the most corrupt. Man, I wish that $4.7 billion number was a drinking game. Yeah. If I drank, that would be a great drinking game. It, I would be yeah. drunk all the time. <laughs> I mean, it, it is funny. They, I think, you know, there, there's something to the idea that, that you know, we're three and a half years away from the next election and, and governments uh, typically will try and ram through controversial pieces of legislation short memories, in, short in general, memories, yeah. assuming the public has a short memory. That all goes out the window if the RCMP comes back with any charges in relation to its own investigation. Now we're going to replace the... the RCMP with the Alberta Provincial Police. Don't you remember? Well, <laughs> probably can't do that in the next six months though. Mm, yeah. So I, mean, I, I, I am curious what, what, if anything may come of that and how that may, uh, bring back some bad memories for Albertans. I mean, the, the thing that I think is most frustrating for some Albertans who probably voted for the United Conservative Party in the spring election was, what does this have to do with the big things that you were talking about Jobs, in the spring? The economy, Jobs, the economy, pipelines. pipelines. Nothing. It's, but that's the frustrating part, I think, for a lot of people who may have normally have been supporters of this party. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that is where a lot of Albertans want to see their government focus on getting the province back on track as it were, as they campaigned on. And so what, why, again, that's, it goes back to the whole idea that it just doesn't, it, it's. Keith and Dave are agreeing. Words, I don't know how to feel about this. No, no, we, we agree more often than we don't. Uh, <laughs> but it's, I think there's a thought maybe going through a lot of, um, a lot of people who did vote for the UCP this time around uh, and have voted for con conservative uh, quite often. They might be wondering, is it possible? Is there another conservative capable of running the province at this point, one that can give you the reduced spending, the uh, driving down the debt and the deficit, the um, changing the way that government works and is being more responsive to the population to do all of those things without all of this, these other shenanigans on the side. One who hypothetically was way ahead of Jason Kenney in popularity polling in Ooh, around about 2017. Okay. Maybe <laughs> a guy who was a potential victim of a kamikaze election And campaign. where is Brian Jean these days? We hey, haven't hey, heard Brian. from him. Yeah, hey, he's been noticeably silent since all of this know. happened. He does have a baby. Those can be quite consuming. Yes. I would be completely remiss, though, if we did not touch on very quickly the pensions issue in Bill 22, which is uh, this bill also makes a couple of changes that are extremely controversial to people who have public sector pensions. One thing it does is uh, it would move investment control of the Alberta Teachers Retirement Fund under the umbrella of AIMCO, which is the Alberta Investment Management Corporation. Oh, my God, there are so many acronyms. Um, and it would also take three huge public sector pension plans, which is full of like firefighters and police and nurses and healthcare workers and uh, municipal employees. Their the acronyms are called LAP, SFPP, and PSPP. My mom has one of these pensions. So conflict of interest declared right here. Don't get don't get at me, ethics commissioner. Um, the uh, the what a, yeah. <laughs> what ethics commissioner? What ethics commissioner? <laughs> That'll be the next one to go. I'm kidding. Well, uh, we'll, we'll no no no. Jason Nixon says <laughs> don't no, put that no, out no, there. No, we're not doing that. 
<laughs> anyway, moving on. The pensions, um, people are very, very upset about these pension changes. The major, the huge pension plans I just mentioned, um, those are already controlled by AIMCO, but they're changing the board structure so the government would be able to pick and choose who the union representatives are and also make it so that they're locked in so AIMCO has to invest that money for perpetuity, whereas like they had an out five years from now where they could... The, the board could say, eh, actually, we're not that happy with, with how you're investing our pensions, so we're going to choose another investment manager. So I guess the question underlying this is like, why why are they cons- trying to consolidate all these public sector pensions under one controller? And they're saying, well, you know, it would be great for AIMCO. We would get, they would pay lower investment management fees. Um, they're, they have a great record of return on investment. Lisa covered a protest, though, by the nurses on... Tuesday or Wednesday? Wednesday? Wednesday. Time is this week. I'm going to say Wednesday. Uh, This week would be accurate. Midweek ish. There were some nurses. About 800 people came, nurses and supporters. It was organized by the United Nurses of Alberta, but there were a lot of labor leaders there, some national labor leaders. Um, they have some thoughts. They have a lot of thoughts and opinions. Business. Yeah. Definitely. And and I spoke to the finance minister that day and I asked him. What uh, what would you say if you were face to face, which you weren't, with uh, you know a protesting nurse who's probably nearing retirement age, who has a sign that says "Keep your hands off my pension," who doesn't agree with these changes? Um, and he, I mean, he he did say that they are continuing the joint governance model; that that's not ending. Um, that it means is they have tweaked. equal numbers of um, union reps and government reps. Right. On the boards that manage pension. Sorry. Right. So an equal representation on the board. Um, the one major tweak, though, is that the government gets to approve or send back the nominees that that the union puts forward By to go on the board. By saying that they're unqualified. Yeah. They're, a they're, credibility competency thing. standards or something. Right. So that, yeah. yeah, that that's their argument is that this is about firming up credibility on the board and that AIMCO will deliver better results and for the these nurses, pension funds. Do the nurses b- believe that? Are they on board? Uh, the nurses were wholeheartedly not on board. And, you know, so I, I, the question remains, I mean, why not let them choose what they want to do with their pensions? Um, and, and the answer seems to be the government knows best. What is the end game here? I'm hearing some theories. What are they doing? Why are they doing this? <laughs> I don't know. I, like... I'm I'm not sure. Maybe to boost AIMCO, as you as you said, that yeah. they have a larger portfolio. It allows them to do economies of scale. That's what the the CEO of AIMCO told me. Right? Is the more the more we manage, the more kind of repute we have in the industry, the more we can economize. Something about digital software money management. Something something. It all makes that makes sense. I just the the one thing I I find funny out of all of this is for a government who's musing about whether we want to get out of the con- our pension money out of the control of the federal government to then turn around and say like oh we're going to take control over your pension <laughs> stuff you're not calling them hypocrites no i'm just saying the irony is kind of delicious it's inconsistent <laughs> you know you know there may be very good reason for it again it's one of those things and i don't know if it's just a, a symptom of new governments where they come in and do a bunch of stuff and don't explain it well and then people get upset like you've seen this week, the UCP 
uh, introduced legislation that will repeal. Have they introduced it? Yeah, they have. It's going to repeal Bill Six, which was the yes. one of the most controversial pieces of legislation. Bill Twenty Six. Yeah. The NDP rolled out early in its tenure, and I just I find it funny that it's coming in the same week that you're seeing the UCP do a bunch of things that other people are. Get, all it's up like, in yeah, arms we're about. Is it just something about that... new governments fix something that may not have needed to be fixed, or maybe it did, but we're not doing it in the way that people think it should be fixed? I don't know. It's yeah, the circle of life the why not, in politics. The why not ask them seems to be, because I still, obviously, having reported on education for a long time, still have a a big cadre of educators in my social media following. And so I'm hearing from a lot of teachers that they educators consulted? not consulted, don't understand so where this I, is coming it's from. It's kind of like the farmers in, t- in 2015. Yeah. They were not so consulted. They were not, not consulted. No, th- this I think is the, the government's key mistake on this is that uh, they have they just threw it at people with no warning whatsoever and didn't consult. And so people are, yeah, rightly concerned. Uh, you know, you can't just mess with somebody's pension and not tell them ahead of time <laughs> that this might be coming. Yeah, you can actually. Well, apparently, apparently you yeah. can. It's not a good idea though. It's not It's not going to be helpful for this government's re-election chances uh, uh, when you when you do this kind of thing, I again I don't see a huge upside. Uh, they say what they're going to add thirty billion to Aimco's portfolio assets at this point. Maybe that helps Aimco. I don't know what the government's plan is for Aimco. Is there, they're supposed to be arm's length. The government is not supposed to interfere with Aimco. Uh, whether that'll stay the case, uh, I don't know. That seems to be about the only advantage I can see. Uh, it may not turn out to be the kind of um, insidious uh, controversy that that a lot of the folks opposing this believe it to be, but the government really needs to do a better job of communicating that. I want to move on to Bill 207. Uh, Lisa had a long day yesterday, took one for the team, stayed late at the late night committee meeting where mm-hmm. Bill 207, can you just remind us what that is? What is this thing? Bill 207, we've talked about it before, it would introduce conscience rights for doctors, for healthcare providers who could essentially refuse to provide a service that they weren't comfortable with. Um, And it also changed uh, a few of the little rules around referrals. So it was a huge concern for a lot of not only doctors, but patients and, and vulnerable people in the province. And this is a private member's bill. So it's not a government bill. It came from Dan Williams from Peace River. Uh, MLA for Peace River. And uh, so that means it goes through a different process than a government bill. It goes before a private member's bills committee uh, who will consider whether or not the government should discuss this at all. Uh, And so... They had a couple meetings this week uh, at which this bill was discussed. What happened? Mm-hmm. Well, at the first meeting, uh, NDP MLA Janice Irwin criticized Williams for not consulting properly, especially in the LGBTQ community, um, and and argued that there's already an access to medical care problem, in especially in rural areas in the province, so this would make it worse. Why didn't you consult people properly? So they came to a compromise, which was to invite public stakeholders to come and talk at a second meeting last night. So at this meeting, that's that's exactly what happened. We had people from uh, trans rights groups, um, Dignity in Dying uh, was there, and we had uh, some doctors as well from both sides. Doctors from Ontario on the phone, though. Interesting. What was going on with that? Yeah. One doctor uh, who was in support of the bill was from Calgary. um, And and she spoke about why she supported just in general, the idea of of shoring up conscience rights in legislation, um, kind of arguing that it needs to go beyond the the professional college standards. Um, But the two doctors from Ontario were a bit odd, and they got a lot of flack uh, 
from the committee for not fully understanding the Alberta situation and exactly what was going on with the bill. And some inside baseball, Janet. Um, <laughs> Love it. <laughs> at, at, at this, so uh, after the first meeting, Dan Williams actually wanted to introduce some amendments, which would soften a lot of the harsher edges of the bill. Um, according to the rules, though, you can't talk about those amendments in this committee. You can't move forward and debate them, presuming that those amendments are going to be debated in the House. Mm-hmm. So they were off the table, but a lot of the witnesses last night didn't get that memo. So there was some <laughs> of some of the debate was a little bit fruitless, uh. um, which is unfortunate because I don't think that they were all debating exactly the same thing. Oh dear! But what ultimately won the day, and I, and I think this was the was what changed the mind of a lot of UCP members. I, I can't speak for them, obviously, but um, when trans rights activists said. You should not put the rights of one group ahead of another group's rights. And when you give doctors this conscience rights bills, you're you're giving that right authority over my right to seek medical care. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that definitely had an effect on a lot of the UCP members. Mm. So they, even though this committee, like all committees are, all um, all party committees are dominated by government MLAs. What did they end up doing with it? So they voted. Uh, there were a couple of uh, holdouts. Um, UCP MLA Michaela Glasgow. She voted to put the bill forward. Um, and Joseph at uh, UCP MLA Joseph Scow. Scow. Is I that how I pronounce how, it? Yeah, I think so. Sorry, Joseph. Sorry <laughs> if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, he also said he supported the bill um, and wanted to see it go forward. But four other UCP MLAs. Um, basically had to try to balance, uh, you know, a real dilemma, I think. Between... And some of them were hearing from constituents as mm-hmm. well. Like some, the public had some thoughts on this one. They definitely, all of them said that they had heard uh, a lot from their constituents um, and made a point of saying, I support conscience rights, but I think there needs to be a balance here and we can't, we can't let that balance Affect patient care, affect patient care, patient access. Yeah, um, and and to be clear, they voted not to let the bill continue, right? And yeah. so it was yeah. it, it was an eight two vote to kill the bill at, at the committee stage. That's right. That's right. So and yeah. I was trying to figure this out on Twitter last night. Is it actually dead? That's a good question, and I need. I was actually going to ask Keith this process because, wise. Yeah, like, there's another thing that has to happen, right? Maybe. <sighs> I th- <laughs> it's it, it's a great on the spot. Yeah, this is a new committee with new rules, so I, I think we're all kind of figuring this out as it goes. But I I think this is effectively the end of it. Uh, I it, if the committee is I, I, the House actually has to vote, I think, on what to do with it. But typically, they take a committee recommendation, and so the committee recommendation is not to let this bill proceed to second reading. So. That, but it is up to the house ultimately, um, because it is still before them to decide that. You guys, where do you think this bill went wrong? <laughs> <laughs> um, at the start, maybe. I, yeah. I mean, there, there's a there's a 
a lot of the debate has circled around whether this is actually necessary and how harmful it is. Um, and there have been people in the public who have basically said this is covered by College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta regulations, and it's harmful to uh, people seeking access to abortion or medical aid in dying or members of the LGBTQ community. Um, and the argument has been that giving doctors these rights, as uh, was talked, as was de- mentioned at committee. Uh, Thursday evening, uh, tramples on other people's rights. Um, so the argument is that it went wrong at at the beginning. Um, I was thinking about, I knew that we were going to talk about this on the podcast today. And I was thinking about it as we came in and I was wondering what, what the end game was, was this a, okay, social conservative base. We're going to give you a little debate on, something that you feel is important to you, but we're not going to let it go anywhere. Basically, what was happening in the background behind this bill? Yeah, How did this I was come just kind of wondering, yeah. like, what would have happened if the committee said yes? Would it have been killed in the House? How would that have played out? Like, I, I get the sense that maybe there's a, a sense that um, leadership in the UCP owes rural Albertans some political favors. And so this is one way of, of getting that out there, but I don't think it did the party any favors. I don't think it did the government any favors, uh, in the lead up to this, especially the way that ministers were responding to questions where I haven't read the four page bill yet. None of them had read it at (laughs) all. And that seemed really strange. Um, they were trying to just avoid it. So that made me think that kind of, this was just seen as a, okay, have your little debate. Uh, but we're just going to kill it now. Throw him a bone. Yeah. And are there any long-term political ramifications, do you think, for for the party on this? Is it another thing that the NDP could sort of bludgeon the, no, the government they with? It. I think they, they yeah. let it go forward a bit and then the committee killed it, uh, including members of the UCP said, no, we don't want this to go forward. And there were other, there were ministers who spoke out against it. Uh, Leela Schweitzer, here was one and Doug yeah. Schweitzer was another who said they don't like this bill. I think it gave some of the high profile members of the UCP cabinet to, to come out publicly against it and, and try and show that the party isn't as intolerant as people think it is. Um, so I don't think long-term uh, letting a private member's bill on a controversial subject go to committee where it dies is going to hurt them. Yeah, and I'm actually going to throw a little credit at the UCP's way in a week that um, they haven't gotten a lot of that. You're uh, so charitable. I, I know, I know. So, I, I mean, they created this committee. This is, a, this is a new thing, right? Private members' bills usually were just introduced and then it was discussed in the House at large uh, and they either went forward or they didn't. Most of the time they didn't. The UCP said, no, we're going to create this other committee to study these private members' bills and it will give uh, folks a chance to kind of dig into it a little bit more, call witnesses. Uh, interview people, do some more research before deciding whether it should actually go to the House. It was and, supposed to save time in the legislature, well, right? Saved, that move. Well, partly, but also to kind of vet the bills and give them a chance to be made better. Um, and I'll, the conspiracy theory at the time was, well, no, this is actually just a way to kill bills out of out of public sight. And that may the committee may still well be used for that reason. However, in this case, I think it actually worked quite well. This is exactly how it should work, where you do have, uh, and, and uh, you know, Lisa, your Twitter thread yesterday was very interesting. I was watching some of it online as well. This looked to be, Thanks, to be an actually a very thoughtful 
adult discussion about a very complicated, sensitive issue that with UCP and, and NDP MLAs, I think actually doing their jobs uh, and, and really taking a very thoughtful look at this issue in a committee setting. I don't think that would have happened in the House. I think that would have been a much more partisan, a lot more yelling and screaming uh, this committee provided the right environment to actually discuss this issue in, in, in an appropriate way. So in that case, in this one case at least, uh, I have to give credit for the UCP for coming up with this. I do have to point out that it did go off the rails at one point. Yes, I did, I did see that. <laughs> I did see that. Yes. I need to move along here. We are so loquacious today. Loquacious? Loquacious? Loquacious. Loquacious. Should we also point out, too, in the spirit of nonpartisan uh, civilized debate, they also recommended the Bill 205 go forward and unanimously voted for it. Yeah, and it's a good bill. Organs. Yeah, Tim, this is the organs. Uh, reverse onus on organ yes, donation. Opt out. opt out of organ donation rather than opting in of organ uh, opting into organ donation. So anyway, in Ottawa, some things were happening while we were all distracted with our little um, melodrama here. Sorry, not to minimize our melodrama. I'm not going to call it little. Uh, there was <laughs> there was a cabinet sworn in finally a month after the federal election, uh, and so obviously there's certain cabinet posts that Albertans might be more interested than others. Uh, we saw Seamus O'Regan, which I can't take him off of that CTV morning Canada show, Canada AM, which I watched for years. I just, I can't remove him from that environment in my brain. He's the new natural resources minister. Huh. Uh, former environment minister, Catherine McKenna. She's now minister of infrastructure and communities. So the new minister of environment and climate change Canada is Jonathan Wilkinson. He's from North Vancouver. In Formerly of Saskatchewan, though. Is he? Yeah. yeah. yeah he oh, is. that's why. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm on to you. I'm on to you guys. <laughs> uh, sad trombone for Alberta and Saskatchewan, though. Wah, wah. Alberta and Saskatchewan didn't vote for them. This, this whole <laughs> idea of representation in cabinet because we didn't vote for them is kind of silly. I, I think that um, we... Albertans and Saskatchewanians. Is that Saskatchewanians. Saskatchewanians. Oh, you're so fired. Um, <laughs> voted uh, <laughs> to turf a bunch of liberals and so they don't get represent representation in cabinet. That's how it goes. Um, but beyond that, I, the prime minister was kind of in a no-win situation with cabinet, right? It's either, oh, you didn't do enough uh, for Alberta or you appoint someone not a from- Senator or something. Not from caucus yeah. and then it's- that's undemocratic and all this sort of thing. I will give him some credit. Uh, Christia Freeland, who I think is a, despite a lot of online criticism, I think has been one of his better performing ministers who is originally from Alberta, even though she represents a seat in Ontario, was named deputy prime minister and minister of intergovernmental affairs. I think that is potentially a, a good signal to the prairies. I think the fact that Catherine McKenna was bounced from environment to, even though infrastructure is still a high port prominent portfolio, especially because that might be the department responsible for building the Trans pipeline, Mountain Pipeline. Yeah. But, you know, conservatives at West, not a big fan of Catherine McKenna in environment. Uh, so she's out of that portfolio. They appointed a guy who, yes, he's an NDP or former NDP staffer from Saskatchewan, if I'm not mistaken, but at least he's from the prairies. Um, again, whether that plays out well in our favor, it remains to be seen. And they appointed uh, to the natural resources portfolio, someone from an oil producing province. I know that Seamus O'Regan is not exactly seen as a 
intellectual heavyweight in cabinet in cabinet. I, well, I, <laughs> he has no Dutch bear. That is absolutely. He, he hasn't been seen as a high performer in cabinet. Yeah. Um, at least he's from a jurisdiction where they pump some uh, oil. Pump some oil. Cool. So those are some <laughs> those are some positives. I'll give him. I'll give the prime minister credit for some of those those choices. Whether they turn out to be positive long term remains to be seen. Um, but in in terms of what could Alberta have hoped for out of a federal cabinet, I think it could have been much worse. Yeah, I, I I do think the prime minister probably did about as good as he could do here with the hand that he was dealt. Some would say the hand he dealt himself. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, shameless O'Regan, as Dave mentioned, yeah, oil producing province from Newfoundland, also from a province who has known some economic trouble as well. What? And so probably can empathize with Albertans and hopefully uh, he will be out here a lot. It sounds like he's uh, in fact here this week already. So Alberta is his first stop uh, and uh, he will uh, hopefully hopefully um, succeed a little more in this portfolio than he did in uh, some of his previous ones. The uh, Christian Freeland, again, when you, when Trudeau appoints his, I think his best performing smartest minister uh, to be um, the intergovernmental affairs minister uh, and to work specifically on, on Western alienation, uh, I think that's a very good sign as well. Jim Carr, let's not forget him, uh, former natural resources minister is going to be kind of the representative to the prairies. Um, now, Jim Carr has is a bit tied up in some of the failures of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, so that folks will remember that. But at least he's from Winnipeg, and he will be on the file as well. So I think these are all positives, but as Dave said, we'll have to wait and see how it actually plays out. I just want to talk about some of the the titles of some of these cabinet ministers, which raised some eyebrows. Um, there are some portfolios I have never heard of before, such as the Minister of Middle Class Prosperity mm-hmm. and Associate Minister thing. of Finance, Mona Fortier. Ridiculous thing I've ever what, heard. What does that do? Um it helps you get ahead to steal the conservative uh, <laughs> slogan from the election. It's time for like, you to get ahead. Yeah, yeah. This, this is a cool. giant cabinet. That's the other thing. This is a big cabinet. There are 10 cabinet ministers from Quebec. This is not going to set well with Alberta. <laughs> 10 from Quebec, none from the prairies. Minister of Digital <laughs> Government, Joyce Murray. Digital There's government. a digital government? Uh Sure. I don't. I don't know. I, this is a government that couldn't get a payroll system done properly. So I don't. Know. Maybe point, we need a Dave. minister for digital government. <laughs> just, I, just minister of Phoenix payroll mess ups. I don't know. <laughs> That's not the word I said in my head. Uh, let's move on to the good stuff from the gallery, Lisa. What have you consumed this week that was worth regurgitating? Oh, this is the good stuff. This the is good the, stuff, the the you say things you like that you read. Yeah, it's like the opposite of. Um, Everything else that happened this week. Everything. Here's what else you don't really need to know today. Um, stuff to wash your brain with. I. This is timely. There's a movie about Mr. Rogers coming out today starring Tom, the beloved Tom Hanks. Aww. And if you want something to... Reaffirm your soul. Your faith in humanity. <laughs> it couldn't come at a better time. And like, obviously, I haven't seen the movie. It's coming out today. But I watched a, a documentary on Netflix called Won't You Be My Neighbor that was, like, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. That uh, if you want to get a little Mr. Rogers in your life, which I highly recommend, you can watch that first. Cool. 
Dave, what do you got for us? I, mine is the exact opposite. Of course it is. <laughs> dark, dark man. It is. It is dark. Um, it is a. It is a drama series. It's from HBO. It's it's viewable on Crave uh, for us Canadians. It's called Watchmen. It's based on. It's kind of like a. It's a sequel essentially of the uh, classic 1980s graphic novel. It's dark. It's you know if you like your your superhero stories with a dose of race politics and conspiracy and dystopia. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> this is, you know, this is, act, this is, it's very well acted. It's got a great cast that includes uh, Lou Gossett Jr. and Gene Smart and Jeremy Irons and Regina King and Tim Blake Nelson. And um, it's being criticized for being too political, but I think the people who are criticizing it for being political didn't actually read the original graphic novel and probably only saw uh, the Zack Snyder movie. Um, but even if you don't agree necessarily with the politics of it, it's still, it's really well-crafted television. I'm going to interject here. Um, and mine is a little more topical to what we've been talking about. So one of the things that we mentioned came up this week was like, what could the Lieutenant, sorry, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Governor, what could she do actually really to interfere with the ascent of a bill. Would she actually do that? Um, and uh, Colby Kosh, who's a National Post columnist, is like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so he wrote a column called A Letter That Should Not Exist on Notley's Obnoxious Vice Regal Fantasy. Worth it for the title alone. Anyway, Keith, what <laughs> have you got? Uh, I have a Washington Post feature called The Most Remote Emergency Room, Life and Death in Rural America. Uh, there is a problem in rural America, as there is in rural Canada as well, uh, of finding uh, physicians, particularly emergency room physicians and so on. And so one of the solutions to this in the United States is to, be, to create these kind of emergency room clearinghouses where uh, it's basically just an office in South Dakota where a whole bunch of emergency room physicians go and they sit in front of a computer all day and they are immediately hooked up to some rural hospital somewhere else in America and they direct the staff through video to, you know, intubate somebody or ah! you know, how, how to save somebody's life who's who's dying, you know, maybe, you know, 2,000 kilometers away. <laughs> and so it is fascinating uh, to see how this works and in some cases doesn't exactly work, uh, but this is the the kind of the new trend in emergency medicine in the United States. Telehealth. You know what they do in, in northern Saskatchewan? They have robots. They have a couple of robots mm. that are in some of the remote northern communities, and the doctor shows up on the robot screen like, hi, I'm your doctor. And the, anyway. but the robot's not intubating anybody yet. <laughs> uh, the robot, you. I think, can possibly do some procedures, but um, I'm not Anyway, I, I'm not going to go into that. This is the bleakest timeline. <laughs> the dystopia has arrived. Uh, that is all the time we have to bring you down and make you feel sad today. Um, if you have any feedback, please email me. I'm at jfrench at postmedia.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Press Gallery. <laughs>